0: Hello and welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR and I am presenting this week's World in 30 Minutes from Oslo. We have two main topics. The first topic, which we're going to discuss, is the Norwegian model. It has emerged as one of the big debating points in the British debate about the referendum on EU membership. Could Norway be a model for the European Union? What is the Norwegian model? And above all, do Norwegians like it? And I will be talking to Ulf Sverdrup, who is the director of the main foreign policy think tank in Norway, NUPI. Second up is Donald Trump the ubiquitous would be nominee for the Republican Party in the presidential elections not so long ago the thought of Donald Trump as president was something that very few people were taking seriously but after super tuesday everyone is having to start to engage with that question and i discussed the Prospects of a Trump Presidency and What It Means for Europe, with Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, on the plane back from Oslo. So the sound quality for that segment might be slightly less good, but I think the content is pretty interesting. So our first topic is the question about the Norwegian model. And if, if there is a Norwegian model, could it work for, for Britain? It's been something which has been central to the political debate in London for the last few days. And I'm very pleased to be joined by possibly the world's greatest expert on the Norwegian model, if there is one, Ulst Sverdrop, who is the director of the uh, of NUPI, which is the, the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs. But he also played uh, a role as one of the two co-chairs of a gov- of a parliament parliamentary inquiry into Norway's uh, European experience. Uh, I think it was, what, 700 pages long, your report in the end.
1: 911, Mark. 911 uh, pages. So we call it
0: the 911 report. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ulf, do you want to talk a bit, first of all, about what the Norway model actually is?
1: Yeah, it's basically a model of uh, European integration without representation. That's the essence of it. So, we're part of the single market uh, and we have uh, in addition to that we have added uh, cooperation in various other topics as well, just as home affairs, uh, in the foreign security policy, so basically limping along uh, on cooperating with Europe on most areas apart from common agriculture policy and common fishery policy and custom
0: union. So you get access to almost all of the single market plus these other areas and what does Norway have to do in return?
1: Uh, not much, actually, in the sense that we, we comply have to comply with the rules.
0: Right, so you have to uh, implement, not, you have to put all of these things into domestic law, just like members of the European Union.
1: Yeah, and there are three principles. So you have a homogeneity, so basically to have the same rules, basically no possibility of having exceptions. The other thing is that you have some kind of dynamic
0: updating of the, the laws, so as soon as the EU make a law, you have to update all law books as well. So as soon as... Brussels makes a law on anything, you have to change Norwegian laws even though you weren't there when when they were being discussed. Yeah,
1: because it's supposed to be homogeneous rules, right. homogeneous
0: interpretation. Yeah.
1: And then the third element to this is that we have a third party court system. Right. What does that mean? So so there's a small kind of European commission it's called EFTA Surveillance Authority. Yeah. Monitoring Norway's compliance okay. with the with the rules. And if we have failure to comply
0: uh, they are submitted to a special court, and that's the after court. So it's the equivalent of the European Court of Justice, so ultimately the Norwegian Parliament isn't sovereign, because this court's more important than the Norwegian courts. Yeah,
1: exactly, and, and the thing is that the Norwegian Constitution doesn't allow Norway to be subjected to the European Court of Justice, so we have our own court system, but it, based in, uh, in reality and in uh, the, the
0: principle is that they should rule as if it was the European Court of Justice that ruled. Okay, and so what percentage of European laws have you actually adopted? Because you looked into that in your big report. You yeah, lo- it's a bit. Uh, it's a. It's that's a, that's a tricky issue to answer. Uh, uh, we, we said that around three quarters. Of EU legal acts, so seventy-five percent of EU regulations.
1: Yeah, but but uh, uh, it depends upon uh, how you measure this, because if you look at the chapters, any member state wants to negotiate in order to access membership. Yeah, there are thirty-three or thirty-four dossiers, and out of them, uh, more than three quarters are adapted. But we know that uh, uh, some policy areas are very dense with legal acts, for instance, common agriculture policy. Yeah. And not all of them are implemented Okay. so so, so the numbers is is it's quite a bit
0: But your best guess is about yeah, seventy percent seventy five percent three quarters.
1: And, and sometimes f- more integrated than some member states.
0: Right? Yeah. Like wow, UK which member states? Schengen. Like UK on Schengen.
1: So that's what online. you
0: mean by the uniformity. You don't have opt outs in the way that Denmark and Britain have opt outs from the from from the areas that you've joined up to. No, so we Participate in some of these areas where you can have opted out, right? But we have some
1: other opt-outs in some sense, in the sense that we are not participating in the Common Agriculture Policy,
0: right? Okay. Regional policy. And does Norway have to um, make a contribution to the EU budget? Uh, not uh, to the budget, but we pay a special
1: kind of EA grant, Norway right. grant, and, and that's equivalent to
0: around today around hundred euro per person, right. per, per head in Norway. So yeah. that must be what—not that different from what Britain pays as its contribution, You must make you one of the bigger net contributors to the European budget. Yeah,
1: fi- uh, I think it would put us um, number five or six or seven, on five the countries. list of net contributors. Okay.
0: Yeah. And do you get access to the structural funds or to the other funds which which European member states get access to?
1: Uh, not s- the structural funds, no. But we participate in the research funds. Right. Then we have access.
0: Okay and then the other element which is central to the british debate is this whole question of free movement and you have to give eu citizens free movement as part of
1: your deal yeah that's part of the deal and uh, if 60 percent of the migrants that came to the nordic countries after 2004 for the yeah. eu expansion came to came to norway wow and so in terms of what percentage
0: of your population is um, i don't know the EU.
1: exact number now uh, but uh, i think that uh, norway have a higher share of foreign migrants
0: in the labour market than UK. So, um, if you add all of that together, you basically get access to most of the benefits of, of EU membership, but you pay more or less the same price of being in. But the big difference is this question about whether you can make the rules or not. And your former Prime Minister... Jens Stoltenberg, who's now at NATO, famously described Norway as a fax democracy. Nobody knows what a fax is today. So yeah. I
1: call it a kind of downloading or streaming democracy, right? <laughs> you get to your office in the morning, you see your computer has been updated by Windows, and you accept or not. That's, that's the thing. So you're right, Mark. Uh, Norway don't have a right. You don't sit around the table, so you don't have a vote. And, uh, and uh, Norway is a small country we can cope with that we or both wouldn't matter much anyhow but I th- what is a bit more frustrating is that you cannot even bring issues to the table you cannot engage in a conversation you cannot get information about rules that you're going to obey later on so right. you don't really know the,
0: the the nature of the rules the purpose of the rules so things come up and they just take you by surprise you can't even because you don't know that things are going to be discussed in the, in the meetings. You can't talk to other countries and try and influence them. You can, but it's, it's like being a lobbyist. Right. It's, it's very difficult. And one other really interesting thing in your report was this whole question, because in, in theory, one of the reasons you want to do this is because it means you don't necessarily have to adopt every single law that goes through the EU. But what happens if, if Norway doesn't want to adopt... Uh, a, a European regulation uh, that
1: has never happened. You know we added more than eight thousand legal acts, and it 's never happened uh, why is why
0: it never happened?
1: Uh, first is that most legal acts are very much in the interest of Norway yeah, and the second thing is that are, uh, if you don't accept the act, there will be consequences,
0: suspension of other parts of the agreements so you won't get access to the market in that area if you if you didn't a- adopt the regulation yeah. but is it literally true that there's not a single time since 1994 when this came into yeah, into
1: operation that's true uh, but it's been Cross. discussed uh, 16 or 17 times to use it but it's never actually used uh, however there have been instances where we had difficulties and but most uh, often those things have been dealt with by Delaying things,
0: putting right. them in the freezer for a few years and then implementing them. That's amazing. So do you think that Britain would be happy with the Norwegian model?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't see it as a model. That's easy to replicate for others. It's more of an accident. It's not, this is not a, a ready-made model either. And you have to take into account that this was designed for a group of countries. Most of them have joined the EU later on. Sweden, Finland, Austria, Switzerland never joined the E.A. either. And all the countries that joined the EU in 2004 had a kind of a sniffing at the E.A. model yeah. and turned it down. And the microstates have <laughs> not found it attractive either. So this is as a compromise in Norway, a political compromise that is suitable for Norway has been and worked fairly well, but I don't think it's suitable for UK, such a great country, uh, with the high aspirations and ambitions for influencing and shaping Europe, this is not the model for them. So
0: why do? Because the the one thing that everyone says in the British press is that well, if it's so bad, how come no one in Norway wants to join the European Union? Uh, kind of the, the the Norwegian uh, political
1: debate became locked in into this kind of trap. So it's very difficult if you are. Almost member. It's very difficult to convince others to make them become member. And for the no side, to reverse, it's also very difficult. With, because this has worked so well, it's difficult to say, okay, let's go towards m- less integration. Right. But if you look at the facts today, I think that the, the majority in the Norwegian parliament, for instance, today would prefer EU membership if they had the choice. But that's not the uh,
0: sentiment in the public opinion right now. So has there been like a proper a, a survey done? Have they yeah,
1: they did a survey before the, the last election. And what did it find? That was a majority of the candidates uh, in the parliament that wanted to join the EU.
0: So it's just not true that people don't want to join the EU. A majority of of candidates for the European Parliament wanted to join the the EU. For the National Parliament. For the National Parliament wanted to
1: join the European Union. But that was then, you know, uh, but now that might change a bit, because what we have seen over time is that attitudes towards uh, Europe in Norway fluctuated over
0: time, very much in line with the economic performance in Norway. So we talked a lot about the economic consequences of being out of decision making and how you have to adopt decisions from elsewhere. What about foreign policy? Because Norway is in NATO. Some people say we don't need to be in the European Union for security reasons because actually NATO is the core place where British security is guaranteed. What's the Norwegian take on that? What's your experience? Uh, so norway have uh, over time kind of first of all have been an active
1: country in nato and have wanted to also to uh, kind of join in closer on european security cooperation for instance uh, lining up with sanctions etc uh, but i think that uh, norway is increasingly finding it difficult to see that a lot of the nato countries have kind of a lot of cooperation coordination going on within the eu structure and that this being transposed over
0: to the NATO structure and Norway's only halfway part of that conversation. So Norway found itself having to adopt sanctions, European sanctions towards Russia without having been part of those discussions, for example. Yeah, and, and Norway is not part of the sanction
1: committee. Uh, and that is and we see that some of the sanctions are actually harming the Norwegian economic interests as well.
0: Okay. So do you have any, so, that, so basically your kind of considered opinion, having studied the relationship more closely between Norway and the European Union than anyone else in the world, probably, your considered opinion is both that it would be better for Norway to be in the European Union, but also that it wouldn't work for Britain. Is that basically a good summary of what you're saying? Yeah, I should be cautious
1: of course of saying what the UK should do, but, but I think that what Norway have is, has an experience is that there's a gravity pull yeah. around European integration, there's a deep societal economic processes going on and regardless of being member, member full member, halfway member, it's gonna, you're being sucked into this gravity field and there's no, really no escape from it and actually it's quite beneficial to be in that st- sphere and you might even add Switzerland, they, they're in reality, a lot of their uh, agreements are also very similar. So they're also more than halfway member and we become closer
0: closer to full membership every day as we go along. Great, well thank you very much Ulf. I'm gonna put a link to the report that you wrote. Well at least, I don't think the whole 911 page is available in English, but there is a summary in English. We'll put that on our website along with uh, links to all the other things that we talked about in this podcast at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. So Jeremy, um, Donald Trump as president of the United States seems less of a joke now than it was uh, a few months ago. Um, How much do we know about what a Trump presidency would be like, particularly on the foreign policy Front.
2: Yeah, um, it is less of a joke and more of a nightmare. Um, but I think that that means that it's worth considering what the hell it might mean uh, as much as we might dread it. I think it's, of course, hard to know what a tr- President Trump would really do on foreign policy. He's really abhorred specifics throughout the campaign, especially on foreign policy. He's, frankly, embraced a level of inconsistency that basically celebrates the idea that the dictates of logic and that the nation's at the nation's shores, so he can, with one breath, uh, proclaim profound disinterest in using force abroad, but then, in the next breath, say that he intends to bomb the shit out of ISIS-controlled fields and Ar- oil fields in Iraq and Syria and surround them with a ring of American troops. Uh, but my my former Brookings colleague Tom Wright has found a certain consistency in his in his understanding of foreign policy. Actually, over the last several decades. And the central piece of it is this, that America is getting a raw deal. It's been, it has in his view been stuck with the bill for global security for generations and it's gotten very little in return. It secures Europe, it secures Japan, and it has to pay for the privilege. Uh, and this is this sense of a bad bargain I think has made Trump even really angrier at his allies, at America's allies, than at America's enemies. Enemies strike hard deals like Russia, but at least you know where you stand. But America's allies are like poor relatives who sort of play on your sympathies to borrow money and then spend all day frolicking in your swimming pool. So for example with Angela Merkel he sees her as someone who is sitting back and accepting all the oil and gas they can get from Russia while the United States is leading on Ukraine.
0: Leading on Ukraine. Leaning on Ukraine, yeah.
2: Um, I'm not endorsing this idea. Um, so the central idea of his foreign policy is that he's going to get a better deal and so. In Trump's version of the transatlantic alliance, a better deal means that European allies like Germany or France will pay for American protection, or more than that, it means that they should not need American protection at all, and he'll expect Europe to shoulder the burden for dealing with conflicts that are European, not American problems, such as the war in Ukraine or the refugee
0: crisis. So it sounds like a weird mix of of withdrawing from lots of different theatres, but stepping up uh, American activism where uh, it is involved, because there is a kind of virility uh, test which he kind of seems to claim that Obama's failing in lots of different relationships. Yeah, there's a huge inconsistency
2: there. It's a sort of testosterone fuel, f- uh, fuel to foreign policy, so it's not completely lacking in in activism, it's certainly not isolationist, but I think what it does is it sort of it, it abjures any global responsibility. So it's very focused on making sure that you get a good deal, that any protection that you provide is paid for, and that uh, that you um, uh, that you in fact reap the rewards of military activism. So, for example, he's very critical of the um, the first invasion of. Uh, the first war with Iraq where because uh, well, I guess both wars with Iraq because the United States failed to secure the oil and his view is that it should have been a war for oil. If we're going to invade a country filled with oil, we should take the oil home with us. Uh, it's a, which is, you know, let's face it, an old concept. Uh, it's known as looting. Um, but uh, I think Trump believes that it's uh, something that the a country with the strongest army in the world that uses it should,
0: should do. So that doesn't sound completely unfamiliar for historians of American politics, it sounds a bit like um, what we know about Andrew Jackson's presidency.
2: Uh, Yeah, it definitely harks back to some uh, very solidly established 200-year-old American (laughs) traditions. Um, As a matter of fact, I think, as I was saying, you know, there is is an old concept of uh, looting. I've been watching the Vikings on television (laughs) recently, and they had a very similar philosophy to Trump. They would go abroad, they would uh, find a rich city, beat somebody up, take their stuff. They even had similar red faces as Trump has. But uh, I th- think that that was a concept of warfare that went out with the with the, in the 19th century. And, and I'm not sure that it makes too much sense to bring
0: it back. So I know that you said that there's it's a foreign policy that's short on specifics, but he has mentioned a few uh, particular dossiers, starting with Mexico. We know quite a lot about Right. Do, do you want to tell us what we do know from what he said about specific relationships? Well, I mean, the
2: most specific element of his policy overall has been an anti-immigration policy, and that, in the case of Mexico, that <laughs> translates into a foreign policy. Uh, And it's essentially that he's going to uh, build a wall to keep out uh, the something over roughly one million um, Mexican immigrants who come and go every year. Um, And uh, consistent with the the good deal philosophy, he's going to get the Mexicans to pay for it.
0: So another relationship that we've heard a bit about is Vladimir Putin. He's spoken a bit about him.
2: Yeah, uh, Vladimir Putin ha- had some admiring words to say about Trump and Trump was sort of, uh, was pleased and I think that, uh, and said, you know, I, I, take, uh, I take praise from anyone and, and I think what he was, he was sort of saying is and consistent with the view that America's enemies are in some sense easier than America's allies because they drive hard bargains, sure, but you know where you stand and they're men with whom you can talk. I think he he seems to feel a certain sort of testosterone-driven kinship with Vladimir Putin, and that uh, means uh, to him that he's a man with whom he can make deals.
0: So you mentioned Angela Merkel before. doesn't seem to be so hot on Angela. No, I
2: I think that he thinks that Angela Merkel is part of a species of American allies who um, live off the fat of the land, who benefit from American protection. Uh, and as I said, who swim in the uh, swimming pool all day long, and, and, um, and that means that uh, America is getting a real raw deal from them. And I think that, that that's an indication of just how dramatically he would change. Uh, the transatlantic alliance which has long been based on this deal that um, America provides uh, the protection in exchange for political influence and you know it's true and I think Trump is capturing something here that there has always been that there has been for for many decades a a, a debate over burden sharing and an increasing sense in the United States that uh, the burden is unfair and that in a time of relative decline uh, that America's allies need to take up more of the burden. And, and I think you know this has been expressed in the Obama administration and before that. But I think that there's a fundamental difference, which is that in the Obama administration, even as they were trying to get allies to pay more and to do more, there was a, there was a basic commitment to the security of Europe, a basic recognition that uh, that Europe's security was essential to the United States, one of the principal American lessons of the 20th century. Uh, And Trump doesn't seem to share that view. This gives him more bargaining power, frankly, with European allies, because he can sort of credibly say, well, you know, if you don't provide the security, I'm not going to either. Um, But I think it also erodes the core of the transatlantic alliance, which has
0: helped both sides of the Atlantic for many years. But you you think it's actually possible that Trump would withdraw troops from Europe not um, look like he was going to stand up for Poland or for NATO allies. Um
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think, as I said, he hasn't been terribly specific, but the tenor of his remarks certainly imply that. I mean, the, this, the view that, that there is not a good deal means that the only way he's going to stay in Europe is if um, the burden uh, for paying for that stuff is fully taken up by um, America's European allies and probably with a profit. And so assuming that that's not a deal that the European allies will take, I think it means a a bit of a transatlantic divorce. I think in that sense, Trump, uh, to the extent that we understand him, is very much outside of the mainstream
0: of post-war American foreign policy toward Europe. So we've done uh, Latin America, we've done Russia, we've done Europe, we've done a bit of the Middle East, what about Asia? Yeah, Asia
2: is a similar thing. And a Matter of fact, Asia is really uh, the case where um, this this Trump doctrine seems most explicitly uh, defined because um, he's been for decades angry at Japan. It's the same type of accusation that he's, that I talked about with Germany, but much more explicit. He believes that uh, Japan is um, getting a is has gotten a great deal from the United States and that the United States protects it and Japan does nothing in return. And this is because, uh, and he's mentioned this explicitly, that the, the U.S.-Japan mutual defense treaty of 1951 obligates the United States to defend Japan, but it doesn't obligate Japan to defend the United States. So for him, this is the sort of definition of a bad deal. And he's explicitly advocated, it. it's one of the few um, specific policies he has, is that is abrogating that 1951 treaty, which clearly, you know, with given the 70 years of peace in the Asia-Pacific hasn't really served America's interests well. So what about China? Uh, China is a little bit more confusing. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the same sort of animus that he, for China that he has for Japan, but he has been very critical of the American capacity to negotiate with Japan, and uh, this is mainly a ding at previous American administrations. But he also is very uh, wary of the, of the Chinese uh, mercantilism, and I think he feels as if he, there needs to be a, there needs to be much, much more, much harsher trade negotiations.
0: It's principally about trade with China, and he thinks that uh, China has gotten the better of the United States in trade deals. So, talking of trade, how does trump see the kind of wider question of the the international liberal order yeah I, I, I think as far as i can tell uh he doesn't really give a fig for the
2: liberal international order or whatever that is i think his his view is that um and, and he's been most vocal on the trade issue that the there's been a consistent pattern of the u.s getting bad deals on trade so this is the bad deal doctrine yet again and it means that um, he's really very uninterested in the TTIP, the TPP, the, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, or the Trans Pacific Partnership, which have been signature uh, Obama administration trade initiatives, which have quite a bit of bipartisan support, actually. Uh, and I think the point that those initiatives have had an important trade component, of course, but also an important geopolitical component, which is to say that they're an, they're an effort to use America's allies to create uh, mini-lateral trading uh, deals that can be leveraged into geopolitical influence, particularly with regard to China. Um, And it doesn't seem that Trump is at all interested in that. It's a bit of an extrapolation, I have to admit, because he hasn't really said anything about it, but the fact that he hasn't said anything about it means that he doesn't seem interested in that kind
0: of geopolitical bargain, and he just sees a bad trade deal. And what about uh, the Iran deal? That's another kind of signature Obama achievement. Has he said anything about that? Um, I think he has, with
2: the rest of the Republican cast, indicated that he uh, doesn't think that the Iran deal is a good deal and that he would. Uh, break it. Uh, I can't remember whether he said he would do it on his first day in office. There was during one of the Republican debates, a sort of bidding war where I think Scott Walker actually promised to do it on his way to the inauguration. Um, But they all basically said they would end the Iran deal. There was just a dispute over how quickly they would do it. Um, But I think uh, in Trump's case, he doesn't really see any particular benefits flowing from that deal, uh, and so, it, but he doesn't seem in any of his statements to really have even examined what it's about. I think we, it, it, we have to be a little bit careful of reading Trump's policies into the sort of motley collection of statements that he has. It seems as if most of these things he hasn't really given much thought to. He's going to, as he said, have really good advisors and it's gonna be great. Which I feel very confident about.
0: So, so, do we do we have any idea who these advisors are going to be? Because looks from the outside, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. How has the Republican foreign policy establishment reacted to the prospect of a Trump presidency? Yeah, with uh, with um,
2: something ranging fr- from uh, horror to um, thoughts of suicide. <laughs> um, the, just uh, just the other day, a, a group of about fifty. Republican foreign policy uh, analysts of very um, big names, such as uh, Elliot Cohen um, and Robert Kagan, signed a letter saying that not only is Trump not a good candidate, but that he is, in fact, that his views, in fact, are so outrageous, so outside of the Republican and American mainstream, that he is actually, in and of himself, a national security threat. Uh, and that uh, they would under no circumstances vote for him or advise him. Uh, and this, this was a group of people who has a lot of experience in Republican administrations. and you would think which would would form a, really a core of almost any um, Republican administration's foreign policy core. but they have very at this very early stage basically eliminated themselves from having anything to do with the Trump administration.
0: Wow. So if he's going to be a national security threat to the United States, do you think he'll be one to Europe as well?
2: Uh, I think because Europe and America's uh, um, security depend upon each other, I I think he certainly would be. Uh, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what it means for the president himself to be a national security threat to the United States, but I think the issue is a lot clearer for Europe because um, President Trump would detach United
0: States from European security, and I don't think that that's in the interest of either the United States or Europe. So, at the beginning of the primary season, everyone uh, said it was almost inconceivable that he would emerge as the Republican nominee. Um, people's tunes has cha- have changed somewhat in the intervening months, but now the same people are saying it's almost inconceivable that he'll be the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Um, are they right this time? <laughs> you know, I, I'm i uh, divided. I was
2: one of those people who thought it was impossible that he could be uh, the nominee. Um... And uh, I stand by that analysis, even though it appears at this juncture to probably be wrong. Um,
0: so, who do you think is going uh, to be the nominee uh, then?
2: Uh, no, no, no. I meant that my analysis <laughs> that he wouldn't be the nominee is probably wrong. Although I have to say, the, the nomination is not decided and it's not definite, but he, he definitely looks uh, likely. Uh, and I, I have no. At the end of the day, I have really no analytical explanation for that. I mean, I I can make one up post hoc, of course, but I couldn't really believe it. I don't I don't, as an analyst of American politics, really understand why people are voting for this guy, but they are. I have to accept that. And so, um, I think what that means is that I would be it would be very problematic to make a prediction about the next one. I think it is every analytical bone in my body tells me. Um, that this guy cannot win the presidency of the United States. But every analytical bone in my body told me he couldn't be the Republican nominee, and that now seems to be wrong. So I'm I'm starting to distrust my bones on these things.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, Jeremy, for this fascinating discussion. There is a link to a fantastic piece of writing on what a Trump foreign policy would be like on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu by Jeremy Shapiro. And I promise that the two of us will come back in a few weeks' time to interrogate Jeremy's bones about Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. So that was The World in 30 Minutes. If you like this podcast, please help us spread the word about it. Give us a rating on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Say that you like it, tweet about it, and also write to us. It's good to get feedback from people who are listening to the programme and enjoying it or not enjoying it. Uh, You can get me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. So from Ulf Sverdrup, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atsinaro.